0: thank you it has been a blessing to be with you all this weekend uh, and enjoyed yesterday and, and uh the, uh, the opportunity to be able to come and, and talk about and think about with you uh, a book that meant a lot to me as I was working on my dissertation, right? I spent a lot of time in First Peter uh, and then uh, have not been able to come back and spend as much time with it in my, my teaching. So for me it's been a joy to, be able to come back and spend a lot of time with, with this letter and with Second Peter as well, right? And so that, that's been uh, in some ways some, some new exploration for me. So it's been a blessing for me and I hope in some ways that it also is, is helpful for you as a community. And, and again, my, my goal this weekend is to hopefully provide some framework for thinking together about 1st and 2 Peter. All right, my understanding is you, you're going to be spending some time in your Bible classes looking at 1 Peter and 2 Peter throughout the rest of this spring. And there are there are kinds of questions that are far more appropriate for you to grapple with and struggle with together in that in that context of a Bible class than it would be for me to, to kind of give you in a lecture format. Right, so my goal is, l- can we provide some, some framework for thinking about these letters so that you are equipped to really grapple with it uh, in, in those, I think, better contexts for thinking about how these passages, how these letters might connect to, to you all here uh, at MacArthur Park. And so we're going to do that some today as well, th- this morning. Uh, there's a specific passage uh, that, that we're going to be looking at in First Peter. Uh, but my primary goal is just to try to provide some, some context and some framework so that when you get to this passage— all right, later on this spring in your Bible classes, then you can do the hard work of figuring out exactly what it means for MacArthur Park. Because it's, it's not, I don't think, an easy passage uh, for us to interpret. And the passage I'm thinking about is this, the, the passage that was read this morning for us uh, that has to do with uh, relationships within the, the households that these Christians were a part of, that Peter is addressing. And so one of the questions that we have to think through is, what are we to do? with these instructions to wives and, and slaves in particular in, in First Peter. And so uh, I want us to hear again, right, this, this whole section uh, in kind of one fell swoop, listening again, that never hurts, I think, to hear it a couple of times and, and see what you notice. I, hear, I want us to hear Peter's instructions to these groups. Right? So I'm, I'm going to go through and pick up it towards the end of chapter 2 and go through the beginning part of chapter 3, which is where we have these instructions. It's kind of unfortunate we have a chapter break right here because it tends to separate them when I think right, all of this is is meant to be heard together. And so Peter begins in some ways by calling the whole community to be subject to every human institution. Uh, We heard that part this morning. And then he turns his attention to some specific groups within the community. And he says, Slaves, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle but also to the unjust. For, for this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, you endure sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But, but if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his footsteps. He committed no sin. Neither was the seat found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he didn't revile in return. When he suffered, he didn't threaten. But instead, he continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on a tree that we might die to sin, but be raised to life. "'By his wounds you have been healed. "'For you were strained like like sheep, "'but now have returned to the shepherd "'and overseer of your souls. "'Wives, in the same way, "'be subject to your own husbands, "'so that even if some do not obey the word, "'they may be won over without a word "'by the conduct of their wives, "'that is by your reverent and pure conduct. "'Do not let your adorning be external.' And do not fear anything that is frightening. Husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way. As with a weaker vessel. Honoring them as fellow heirs of the gracious gift of life so that your prayers may not be hindered. And then he closes with an appeal to everyone. All of you have unity of mind, sympathy, tender heart, brotherly love and a humble mind so you have those instructions that that, that peter offers in the middle the heart of his letter to these specific groups within the community Uh, and and we as people who follow god who follow jesus and 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 appeal to the to the the word to the bible as as a rule for how we should live come to passages like these and want to know a very good question what does that mean for us what is this telling us about how we should live maybe in our own households? Does, does it have something to say to us about how we should live in our households? All right, and so to, to explore this question, I think it's actually helpful to remember that these instructions that Peter is offering to this community are not given in a void. Right, there are other other places right, where, where people are being instructed about how to live in their household, and that, that wider setting might help us understand and see what Peter's doing as he offers a similar kind of advice to his audience here. So, we have some places within the New Testament, for example, where Paul will offer some instructions to people within uh, the, the household. Right? So, if, if you want to look with me quickly, we can look at Ephesians chapter 5, right, the last part of Ephesians, Ephesians 5, or Colossians chapter 3 passages in Paul's letters that look very similar, in some ways uh, imitate one another, and see some similar kinds of instructions. So if, if you look there, at this point, I, I'm not as concerned with precise instructions, just want to see kind of how these types of instructions are given. Right? What's, what's the form that they typically take? And so if you're looking in Ephesians chapter 5, all right, picking up in verse 22, y- you notice pretty clearly when we, when we shift into this section where Paul is going to start addressing the household and offering some instructions about how they should live, because we start getting these direct addresses to certain members of the household. All right, where, where do we start in 522? Wives, followed by husbands. Then who do we get next? Children, right? Followed by fathers, right? And then slaves and masters. Right? So we get, we get these instructions to these, these parts of the ancient household. Wives and husbands, children and fathers, slaves and masters. Right? Flip over to uh, Colossians in chapter 3. Picking up in verse 18. What do you see there? It should look familiar. Wives and husbands, children and fathers, slaves and masters right the same that same uh triad of pairings right is addressed in each place right and so we're starting to get a picture of when you offer instructions to a household about how people are to conduct themselves in the household these this is what you do right these are the groups that you address these are maybe the kinds of instructions that you give them and you notice there's a lot of similarity in the instructions that are given in ephesians and colossians if you read through those right? sometimes the accent or emphasis is put on one part of the household over another There might be a lengthier description given to the husbands, for example, in Ephesians, and maybe it's a lengthier description given to the slaves in Colossians, but you're getting similar kinds of advice there. And it's helpful for us to realize that this kind of instruction, this way of instructing people, is not even unique to the New Testament. There are other philosophers and teachers from the ancient world who are instructing the household in similar kinds of ways. We can go as far back as to Aristotle. So we can look at Aristotle's and, and how he offers instructions. And in, in his book uh, that we call Politics, which is, uh, which is his teaching on how to have a stable, healthy, strong city, polis, Right, politics, and he begins, interestingly, with the household. Because he understands, right, as right, to, to people throughout the ancient world, that the household is the individual building block of the society, of the city, of the polis. And so if you want to have a strong, stable city, that's healthy and thriving and flourishing, you've got to have strong, stable households that are healthy, thriving, thriving and and flourishing. And so that's where Aristotle begins. And he begins by saying, all right, let's let's address what's happening here in the household. The parts of the household management correspond to the persons who compose the household. And the complete household consists of slaves and freemen. Now we should be examining everything in its fewest possible elements, and the first and fewest parts of the family are owner and slave, husband and wife, father and children. Right, same, same triad of parents. Right? This is how they understood the ancient household. And if you want to offer some instructions on how the household is to be strong and healthy and thriving, this is who you address. Right? This is, these are the, the different kinds of relationships that you talk about. Now, Aristotle right, is, is uh, s- several centuries before the time of the New Testament, but this way of thinking about things uh, uh, keeps on going right up until the time of the New Testament. So we can look at somebody like Seneca, a, a Roman Latin-speaking philosopher from the first century who's, uh, um, uh, uh, who coexists in the first century alongside the authors of the New Testament. Right? And he's, he's doing the same kind of thing. Right? That department of philosophy, he says, which applies precepts appropriate to the individual case instead of framing them for mankind at large. Right? So you have different kinds of philosophy, some that deal with general principles right? and some that get into specific instructions. Right? So that's stuff that gets into specific instructions, Uh, which, for instance, advises how a husband should conduct himself toward his wife or how a father should bring up his children or how a master should rule his slaves. This department of philosophy, I say, is accepted by some as the only significant part. So we'll go on and and talk about this, but, but the point here is to identify he's still thinking in these same terms for what a household looks like and how you instruct a household. And so when we get to this information in the New Testament, they're not creating this out of whole cloth. Right, this is a common way of thinking about and, and, and instructing uh, households and in how they're to live together. And in some ways, some of the instructions that we get from Paul and Peter in the New Testament are not that dissimilar from the instructions for how to have a healthy and, and stable and thriving household right, that, that Aristotle or Seneca would give to their households. There are some general rules about how, how we get along well together and live well together. Now, th- there are some important differences. Right? If we took time to really study the, the kind of instructions they give, we'd notice some things right away. One, right, you, as you might have already noticed, is that um, the, the roles are inverted in the New Testament. Okay, so b- both Aristotle and, and Seneca list the, we might say, social superior first, right? Husband, wife, father, child, master, slave. That's flipped, interestingly, in the New Testament. And it's wives, husbands, slaves, masters, right, children, fathers. So that itself is interesting, and also interesting, in Seneca and Aristotle, they address these instructions to the patriarch, to the husband, to the master, to the father, because that's the person who had the education to read and study philosophy in the ancient world, by and large. So they're offering instructions, they're offering instructions to this one person about how he should construct his household so that it's a healthy, functioning household. We notice right away, Paul and Peter, they directly address each member of the household. They're not concerned about offering instruction through the patriarch, right? Wives, he speaks directly to them. Slaves, he speaks directly to them. right, so there's some key differences there. And of course, maybe the biggest difference is that the instructions to the household, while some of the content might look similar, right, that you're going to submit to those that you should and have a a healthy household where you get along, while some of that content looks similar, of course, in the New Testament, it is framed entirely differently. It's the pattern of Christ that is the model that they're following when they live that way. So there's some key differences even as we're, we're moving in familiar waters as we see these things. And so what we, what we notice right, is that ancient households have a certain kind of structure to them. Right? You've got a husband, father, master figure. Right? And we should be clear, even though there's, those are three different roles, that's, that's one guy in ancient household. Right? So you've got the patriarch, right? and then the patriarch has different kinds of relationships to different parts of the household. Right? To his wife he is a husband, to his children he is a father, right? to his slaves he is a master. But that's the, that's the typical structure that we get of an ancient household. So if you're going to offer some instructions about how to thrive as a household, those are the things that you're going to address. All right, now maybe we're ready to come and see First Peter and think some more, what is Peter saying here? All right, we might notice that Peter makes some pretty serious breaks in form, even though it's very familiar what he's doing. Right When, he's, when he launches in, slaves do this, wives do this. If you are part of the, the, this ancient culture, you, you know where you are. We're in the household code. We're in instructions to households about how people live. But then you might just as immediately wonder, hey, but wait, you don't address everybody. And I, when I told you this section, I told you this whole section of the household code. And so you, you might have noticed right away, there's, a, there's some roles right, that don't get addressed in First Peter. So who, who don't you see being addressed in First Peter? Children don't get any direct instructions. And the counterpart, fathers, right, don't get any direct instructions. Masters don't get any direct instructions, right? We're, we're kind of whittling things down, really, to, to wives and, and slaves, and, and then a little kind of uh, ver- one verse, right, given to husbands. So the husbands aren't left out completely, but they're not the focus. Right? The, hu- the focus, for, for whatever reason, and this is what we're going to explore, the focus is on these slaves and wives and how they should conduct themselves, within the household right? well it's worth asking why, why is this so or why, why is Peter so focused here right that he leaves out these other expected parts that he would address when he moves into instructions on how to have a healthy household now we should note that he comes back in chapter five and in chapter five he does offer instructions to elders and to younger people so maybe maybe he gets some children in there somehow right but it's, it's much later and it's not connected here to this section right in this section we really are focused on, on these roles so so why Right, why give them the most attention? And maybe we could, we could think of some possible answers. Right? Maybe it's that um, there weren't any masters in the household, or in, in the church, Right? rather. I, I don't think that's the case. I, I, th- I think there are people in these communities who, who are patriarchs, right, who are the heads of households. Not everybody in the community would fit that role, but I think there are people there. Right? So he doesn't, he doesn't leave out masters because there simply aren't any masters in his audience. I think there probably are. Right, um, certainly that would be true for fathers, right, I mean, there's got to be some fathers in there, right, even though they get left out, right? so it's not because these roles are not represented in the community, right, there's some other reason that they're not getting the attention, right? uh, I also would, would want to say it's not because uh, somehow they were doing things perfectly and didn't need instruction, Right? my guess is fathers needed some instruction just as much as everybody else did. The children surely did, didn't they, right? Uh, and, and probably those masters needed some reminders about how they were to live. So it's not because they're good, right, and living well, and so we can leave them off and just focus on the problem children. I don't, I don't, think, that's, I don't think that's it either. Right, there's something else going on here that these roles receive the focus they do. Now part of maybe, maybe discerning what's going on here is being aware of the, the wider context of what's going on with First Peter. And so those who were here yesterday have some sense of what these communities as a whole are experiencing and maybe why right, slaves and wives would, would get the tension they do. The thing I, I want to propose to you here is that the, the slaves and the wives right, are the two groups that could cause strife or or friction or instability or unrest within the family if they converted to Christianity. If they became followers of Jesus, that choice for slaves and wives could create some serious friction uh, and disunity within the family unit. And that's not true in the same way for masters, fathers, husbands, really, or or children. Children, of course, are, are really too young to become members of this community on their own. Right? We, don't, we don't find them converting to become Jesus followers without the rest of their family. Right? They're, they're too young, so that's not going to be a situation that they could experience. And if the patriarch, right, the father-husband-master figure in the household, if he decides right, that he's going to become a Jesus follower, guess what happens to the whole household? They all do that. Right? that that's how things were structured. The patriarch decides for the family who they are going to worship. And this is an important part of family life together in the ancient world. So if he converts, if he becomes a follower of Jesus, no problem. Right? Everybody goes along <laughs> with him. So the, the, the issue here, the possible problem is if slaves and wives, who are adult figures and may come into contact with people from the Christian community, maybe come in contact with their Jesus followers, be attracted to uh, the, the hope and the freedom Right, that, that, this, that, this, that this movement is providing, could themselves become part of this community right, without the rest of the household, and then what, what kind of issues might that cause? Well, one place to help us think about how ancient people might think about this would be to go to look at yet another philosopher from the first century, a contemporary with the writers of the New Testament, a guy named Plutarch. Plutarch wrote biographies of of lives of important people. He also wrote uh, essays, just uh, offering general instruction on topics. And one of his essays is called Advice to a Bride and Groom. So he's got a couple of his friends who are getting married. He's going to offer some advice. Here's how you have a a happy, long-lasting marriage. So we can get some insights on how ancient folks thought about this, right? How do you have a successful marriage? And so he's writing this to them, but there's a sense in which, you know, he's he's intending everybody to read it at some point. This is general advice to anybody who thinks that they're going to get married. So part of what he says in this advice is what I've got up here, right? A wife ought not to make friends of her own, but to enjoy her husband's friends in common with him. The gods are the first and most important friends. Therefore, it is becoming for a wife to worship and to know only the gods that her husband believes in and to shut the front door tight upon all queer rituals and outlandish superstitions. For with no god do stealthy and secret rites performed by a woman find any favor. Now, the misogyny there is pretty on the surface, right? I, I hope we were kind of cringing some there as we, as we hear how, how Plutarch wants to talk about these things. That, that's, a pr- that's an appropriate response. Okay? But... I mean, we need to understand, though, right, that this is how right, he's thinking about what a healthy household looks like. And Plutarch would not be alone, right? He's representing what is a kind of a broadly understood way. Here's how you have a healthy household. And it's not that far off from how we think about things, right? Given, right, take, take out the kind of uh, misogyny here. This is not that far off from how we think of things. Basically, what Plutarch is saying, right, is a family that prays together stays together. I think we get on board with that right? Worship together as a family is crucial to family uh, uh, dynamics, right? To family relationships, to having that solid, uh, stable, flourishing family, I think we can agree with the ancients here. Worship together is a really important part of that, And and it was true in these households, right? And the wife played an important role in the worship that the household conducted, Right, they were there uh, to, to, to make sure that the children are being trained in how we worship the gods that our household worships and to maybe be involved in leading those worships within the household. Right, so they are crucial to supporting right, their husband in the worship of the most important friends, gods. So what's going to happen if a wife or, or a slave who would also be expected as a member of the household to be participating in this worship of the family gods, what happened if they start withdrawing from that? Because now they are devoting themselves to the worship of the one God. And they, they don't want to be a part of this anymore. And they don't want to teach their children about this anymore. Right? And we can start to see that the tension or the friction that would, would cause. What happens if they're sneaking away early in the morning to go participate in what must have sounded to these Roman patriarchs like strange, superstitious practices? You're eating somebody's body and drinking his blood. Right? You're sneaking off to do this at sunrise, early in the morning. Right? And then on top of that, you're, you're not you're not contributing or participating in, in what has kept our family together. Right? There, there's, a, there's a real potential problem here. Right? In the the, uh, the what would happen if wives and, and slaves convert without the rest of their household? Right? Withdrawing from the worship of the family gods, they could be viewed and labeled and maligned as homewreckers. In the ancient world. You're people who are disrupting and destroying the, the households that make up our society. And if the household is the building block of a, of a strong and stable society, your are threatening the household is actually bigger than that. It's threatening the stability and safety and security and flourishing of our whole society, of our city. And so it's a serious claim. Right? If people start accusing you of, of destroying or wrecking the stability of the home. I, I think it's into that context that Peter is offering his advice Two slaves and wives. Right? And we, we see this throughout the rest of 1 Peter. And right? again, those who were here yesterday know this. We have these, these instructions throughout 1 Peter where he's, he's very aware that the, the audience as a whole, the people he's writing to, are suffering uh, from being shamed by the society they're a part of. Right? He uses the language of exile to talk about their experience. Their experience feels like exile. They feel like foreigners where they are. That, that experience is felt because those who are not part of their community are slandering them, are maligning them, are speaking of them as evildoers. This is the kind of language we get in First Peter. And he's trying to offer them some advice. H- how, do you, how do you navigate that right, when you have this experience of exile? And, and the slaves and the wives and their experience fits, I think, right into that. Right, and that, that's part of what's going on here. So what, what, what is he advising the slaves and wives to do? Right. I think first, where I'm going to start here, is, is he, he centers... Right, his instructions to them on the example of Christ. All right, so when, when I told the whole passage, you've got some instructions to slaves that flow right into a really beautiful description of what Christ has done. All right, and this call to the slaves, specifically, you're to follow in his steps. All right, when you suffer under an unjust master, you're following the pattern of Jesus. Wives, when you live with a husband who is not part of this community, you are Following the pattern of Jesus, right? who, who was in a situation where he found himself maybe maligned, suffering, right? and of course even worse for Jesus. But what happened when he was reviled? He did not revile in return. But what happened when he suffered? Well, he didn't threaten. No, instead he kept entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. He kept trusting God rather than lashing out in response, right, or kind of asserting something against those who, who, would, who would speak against him. And for that, that's how Jesus navigated this, and they are held up as people who are going to imitate that example. How are you going to survive in a household, right, where you are part of the Christian community and, and the rest of the household is not, where your, your master might be unjust to you or your husband might be unjust to you? How do you survive that? Well, imitate here the example of Christ. And by extension, if they're doing this, I think this is a really interesting part, they end up being models for the whole community. Because their experience is a microcosm of what the whole community is experiencing. In the household, they are the minority being maligned for their faith in Jesus. That's the experience of the whole community, right? The community as a whole is being maligned by the wider society because of their faith in Jesus. So the experience of the slaves and and the wives is a microcosm of what the whole community is experiencing. And so Peter, I think, instructs them, but then also holds them up as an example for the whole audience. You want to know how you can survive your experience of exile? Look to the slaves and wives among you. They'll show you how to do this. They know about this in a way you don't. Right, look to them, and you can see what the example of Christ looks like, right, what the pattern of Christ looks like when it's lived out in a specific, in a specific life. Right. And so we've got this where They're being held up, called to imitate Jesus and being held up as exemplars for the whole community. And the specific way that they're going to embody the pattern of Christ in their situation is that they are going to silence the accusations of those who, who claim Christians are home wreckers right, by living as, as model sli- slaves and wives in every possible way. Be a good slave. Be a good wife so that when people say things about you that you're wrecking the home or destroying the stability of the household, your, your conduct shows that's absolutely false. Right, that could be further from the truth. So that, that seems to be his advice. That's why he's telling them to do the kinds of things he's telling them to do. Live in this way, and by doing so, you can silence those who want to slander you in this way. Right? They, they maybe are attracted to the, the, the freedom that Christ is offering them as slaves and wives. I think we can imagine that. And yet what, what Peter is telling them here is that freedom is not something to be exerted, asserted and exploited. That's not how you live as a free person. Right? He comes back to this later in 1 Peter. Right, actually, actually, it's earlier. It's, it's, at the, uh, it's at the, uh, right before he speaks to the slaves in chapter 2. He says, live as free people, but not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Right, yes, they have been free, but what does that freedom look like if it's following the pattern of Christ? That freedom, what they are free to do is no longer be kind of tugged around by their whims and desires. They are now free to submit themselves to one another, to be servants of God. Right, and so they are going to... Um, they're 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 living this way. Their, their choice to submit to their their, hu- their their masters and their and their husbands in this choice is not uh, a kind of uh, acquiescence to the world as it is. Oh well, poor me. I guess this is what I'll do. No, I think Peter wants to pick. It is it is a intentional choice to lay down their will, right, and submit to another. And that is not a move of powerlessness. Instead, it is ultimately powerful because that's what Christ does, and he conquers death when he does it, and so he's inviting them to do something, to live in a way, right, rather than choosing, rather than choosing to assert their freedom, right, and and try to assert power to resist, instead they are choosing, right, an active intentional choice to to lay that down and empty themselves, right, in these, these contexts they find themselves, and that's going to have the power to, to maybe even convert the people in their household. Not only survive the situation, but maybe even overcome and, and, and bring, uh, bring salvation to the, the places where they are. Right. So that, I think that if that's what the instruction he's giving us, uh, giving them, uh, it does lead to uh, an important question that sometimes, sometimes has been raised about First Peter. Right. And, th- and the question is, is that kind of advice Christian accommodation to the norms of Greco-Roman life? It sounds like what Peter's doing is he's saying, hey, live like good Romans so that you can avoid suffering. Uh, and is that just kind of an accommodation to the norms of their society? Shouldn't they be resisting that in some way? Right, and so there's been debates in First Peter about what exactly is going on here, and some think, yeah, this is a kind of accommodation. Right, it, basically, Peter's using a strategy here to avoid suffering, just go and be good Romans, right, rather than maybe holding on to something that is more central to their Christian identi- identity. Where others say, no, no, that, nothing could be further from the truth in First Peter. And I, and I would go with, with the latter there, right? I don't think this is accommodation in that way where they're giving up something essential to what it means to be Christian just to avoid suffering, right? By looking like the people around them. That's not what's going on here. Now, they, they can be good slaves and wives, but this choice that they're making, this choice to empty themselves in submission rather than asserting the freedom or rights that they might have as, as, as followers of Jesus, that is a countercultural thing to do, not accommodation, right, to the norms around them. That, that move to empty yourself in submission to another is not a norm, right, by the society. That is something different. That, that is a holy nonconformity toward the world around them, and it's a kind of holy nonconformity that has the power to silence accusers and possibly even convert their household. So I think it's not accommodation that he's calling to them to, but something far more radical and subversive than that, right? something far more powerful than that, even though it doesn't look like power, as the world typically defines power. All right, so if that's, if that's what's going on here, right, that's how I'm, I'm hearing what's happening in the instructions to uh, the, the, the household members, right, particularly slaves and wives, then really the big question, and here's one where I'm happy, right, to just kind of set the table and then let you guys discuss this as classes when you, when you get to this material later this semester. The big question is, how should these household codes then from 1 Peter be applied in a contemporary setting like our own? What should this look like at, at MacArthur Park as right, part of what you have to think through? Right? And, and again, the issue here is that there, there are some gaps between ourselves and these communities, right? Our households are not structured exactly like the ancient households were. And so this is to require some discernment and some thought as we think through how does this passage from 1 Peter shape who we are today? Right? And there's some different ways you might address that question, some different, different uh, ways you might pursue, right? Uh, so one possibility right, might be something like um, the instructions that are given by this author should be applied literally to all Christian families in all times and all places. Right? Peter said it to them at that point, inspired by God, that's exactly what we should do now. Right? So kind of apply that, that's what he said, let's do exactly that. And there is, I think, a, a great attraction to that way of doing things because there's something that feels clear and neat about it. That's what he said, okay, let's go do that. But it's not without its problems. Because as we said, the ancient household was structured very differently than our modern households. And to say what we should do is apply these literally in our own context is basically to say that somehow the first century ancient household was the paradigm of households that God wanted to be true for all times and all places. I, I just don't know that that's the case. And we don't, even if we might think we're interpreting it in this way, we really don't interpret it this way to begin with. I think it's a very good thing. I'm going to say this with confidence. I think it's a very good thing you don't have slaves in your houses. Right? That's a gospel thing. And if we, were to take the, if we were to take these and kind of apply them literally right, th- and try to reconstruct ancient households in our modern context, we'd need some slaves. No, right? That, that's the wrong move. So that's why we're not really interpreting that literally anyway. Right? And so maybe there's another approach we can take. Right? Uh, another approach would be to say, uh, These instructions are so culturally bound to that particular moment in time and to those kinds of households that don't look anything like our own households. it's so culturally bound that it doesn't apply really to us as Christian families. These should be ignored as as irrelevant to us. That's another possible approach. But I don't think that's an approach that that those of us who are part of of a faith community are going to be satisfied with. That's not how we understand the word of God to function for us. It is a norm for us in some way. And it won't do for us just to say, we don't like this part, we don't understand this part, we think that part's irrelevant, right? We need to think instead of do the hard work of thinking through in what way might it be relevant, right? So then a third option, and the way I would probably go here myself, if that's not already obvious, right, is to try to discern what, what's, what's the intent of the instructions? What is Peter wanting to accomplish? What is he trying to do here? Right? Or if we want to put it another way, what, what is God doing through Peter for these communities? What is he trying to create? What's the, what's the purpose or intent all right, and then if we can sort that out, then we might be able to think at that level, okay, what would it look like to apply that same intent in contemporary Christian families? Right, now, that, that's a harder road. Right, there's something neat and easy about just taking the words as they are and saying, let's do that, let's just follow them literally. All right, but I think there's too many problems with that, especially in these passages. We, I think we've got to go another way, but this is a harder way. Because it's not always clear or easy to figure out what the intent is of the author is right? and we might disagree as we try to, try to sort out what the purpose of the, this passage is right? and that might lead to some, some conversations about how how can we as a community be faithful to these instructions to to uh, to the members of the household right? and i think that's these are questions that again you need to grapple with because they're highly contextual questions right? what does this look like at macarthur park What does it look like in your families? What what does it look like here in in San Antonio? Because I think that's, if I'm I'm trying to unpack or begin to unpack the the intent of what's happening here in these instructions, what I I see happening is is that that Peter is is trying to help them figure out how are we going to survive, and not just survive, how are we going to thrive? How are we going to be God's people in exile as we're experiencing suffering and oppression from those that are outside? That's the context, And in that context, part of what he's saying is, you can silence those who say these kind of things about you by living as upright people in every way that's possible for you. If that's the intent, right, then we might sit back and ask ourselves, okay, what does that look like for us? What are the kinds of upright lives that when people look at Christian households, they would say, these are good people. We can't say bad things about these folks. that that your lives of of self-emptying love and submission for one another would be so compelling that it might even silence those who say bad things about Christians and, even better yet, bring them into the community somehow. And my guess is that if that's the intent, that's what we're after, then the way we think about how those households should be structured and the kinds of relationships we should have within those households might actually look a little different than what Peter lays out because we just don't live in that culture. Our households aren't structured that way. Yeah. So again this is hard work this is the hard way but I think it's what we have to do if we're going to really grapple with with a passage like this right? as I think about it my own household my wife and I I think have a far more egalitarian relationship than what's outlined in in, in first Peter right? and, and I don't think that we're living in defiance of what God wills for the household when we live in that more egalitarian relationship all right where we share leadership within the household and she leads in the area she's gifted I lead in the areas I'm gifted we don't have a patriarchal structure like the one laid out in 1 Peter. And I think that's great. I don't think, that, I, I don't think that's a problem. I'm not, I'm not aiming toward or moving toward having a more patriarchal structure in my household. Part of that is because I think in our society, in the cultures I've been a part of, right, if, if, if I try to set things up in kind of this strict hierarchy where I'm the boss of the family right, and everybody else get in, better get in line or else, what kind of reputation is that going to earn me in, in the communities I live in? Is that going to be a winsome, compelling picture of the gospel? Not in most places I've lived. And so for me, to faithfully live out what Peter's trying to do in, in these instructions of the household, adopting that egalitarian structure where my wife and I share and lean on one another and, and, and embrace one, one another's gifted, giftedness, I think, hopefully, offers a much more winsome, compelling invitation to the gospel, right to those who are not part of the community. So that, I, I told you I wasn't going to tell you how to interpret it, and I'm not. Right? I'm throwing I'm throwin out there how I start to think through it. Right? Knowing, man, there, there's, there's some issues with that, right? Because we don't want to fall into a kind of accommodation to the norms of the society around us just so we can look good to them. That's not what Peter's after. Right? He is after holy nonconformity. And so there's some tension right, that we've got to maintain here. Right? And, and I hope that the egalitarian relationship my wife and I, look, while it is maybe compelling to those who are outside, hopefully, right? I, don't, I don't know, uh, hopefully, that it's also something that, that kind of surprises them in its differentness. Yeah, you, you, you work together, right? You love one another, but, but the, the way you love one another, that you empty yourself so completely in service to one another, man, that blows me away. That's different than I've seen, right? So I hope it can be both, right? I hope it can be something that, that's compelling at the same time that it's something that, 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 that attracts people with its differentness. I hope they see a little picture in the relationship uh, between my wife and I of, of what it is that God wants for all his creation. Right? And then that draws them in to worship that God. I think that's what it means for us to be the holy people, and, and that's something that we'll, we'll spend some more time thinking about and talking about together uh, in, in our sermon this morning. You know, I, w- I want to thank you for, for working with me, giving me some time to think through these passages. Uh, I understand right, this, this can be challenging material, uh, and, and I hope, right, as I've said, I hope what we've been able to do today is, is to provide some contours that will encourage robust discussion in your classes. Right When you get to this passage or, or to other passages in First in Peter. Let's close our time together with a prayer. Father, you are so good. You are so beautiful. And we see your, your shocking, surprising beauty in the pattern of your son. And the way he lived is so often not the way that we think will bring us happiness. And so we try other things. God, let us have the faith to believe that the pattern of your son, that his life of, of emptying himself and trust to you is, is, is exactly the kind of flourishing and happiness that you want for us. And we know, God, that, that living in that way is not something we're going to be able to do on our own. And so we appeal to you. We appeal to your spirit. Fill us, change us, transform us, unbend us from the things we cling to so that we can, like you, empty ourselves in love to those around us. your son's name we pray, amen.